Welcome to Tax Breaks, a podcast by the Federation of Tax Administrators where we delve into current subjects and their relevance to the realm of tax administration. Each episode of our podcast features conversations with esteemed professionals from government, academia, and the private sector. Our guests generously share their wealth of knowledge and unique perspectives, providing invaluable insights and expertise to our listeners. I'm Ryan Minnick, FTA's Chief Operating Officer, and this episode I was joined by Courtney K. Decker, the IRS Deputy Chief Taxpayer Experience Officer. We had a great conversation and learned quite a bit about the initiatives going on in that office. Can't wait for you to hear all about it. Enjoy. Uh, I am super excited for our conversation this month. Uh, we're joined by Courtney K. Decker, who is not uh, necessarily new to FTA. She's new to the podcast, but she's a former tax commissioner, former FTA board member, and I'd like to say a good friend of mine. So welcome, Courtney. We're excited to, to have you on, the, on Tax Breaks. Thanks, Ryan. I'm so excited to be here, and I love that FTA is doing this um, podcast. Very fun to get more people involved in state and local tax. Right. I think it's great that we get to give the public a little glimpse into the, what I always say, the most exciting, boring work that you could ever imagine. So I, I don't know, every time I talk about tax, I get a little bit, a little bit nerdy, but let's start since our listeners probably don't know you. Um, I'll ask you to go ahead and introduce yourself, give a brief, brief background and what your role is at the IRS. Thanks, Ryan. So you so well introduced me as a former commissioner in the state of Iowa, and um, I've been involved with FTA um, since those days um, back in 2011. I can't believe it's been that long ago now the, from my, my beginning times in, in state tax administration. And really, state tax administration is um, such a great place to be because you get exposed to both federal and state issues across the country. Um, so I, I really think that in, in tax administration in particular, um, our revenue agencies get to be those true um, um, laboratories of democracy, as we like to talk about, um, because of all of the different perspectives in each of the states. So I had a wonderful time for eight years being um, the director of revenue in the state of Iowa. Um, I, I was a, a practitioner before and after that, and then had the opportunity to join the IRS going on a year ago now as the deputy chief taxpayer experience officer. And it has been a whirlwind of fun um, and you know, such a um, wonderful exposure to a different avenue of, of tax administration. And, and I like to think that I bring a little bit of the states with me um, to the IRS um, in the work that we're doing. Um, and, and I often say, you know, in my role as commissioner, I felt like I was the chief taxpayer experience officer for my state. So, um, so this role feels like a natural uh, progression for me. Absolutely. Well, I know that was central to a lot of your philosophy when you were commissioner in Iowa. I remember that from our many conversations at conferences and things. And one of the really interesting things for me is that, like you said, states are laboratories of democracy. We often talk about revenue agencies being, revenue agencies being laboratories of innovation. This is a really innovative thing for the IRS. I mean, the IRS, who doesn't typically open a new department or a new division, I know this kind of the creation of the Taxpayer Experience Office is rooted in the Taxpayer First Act. But I know, you know, that office was created. You came on shortly after. I can't believe it's already been a year. I guess time flies when you're having fun. Um, could you help me understand, help the listeners understand a little bit? How did that office get created? Like, what was the impetus behind putting Taxpayer Experience in that TFA? 
So the the idea of putting taxpayers first really is not new for the IRS. Um, and, and I think other tax administrators are going to feel the same way about, you know, the, the passion we have towards serving our taxpayers. So when Congress passed the Taxpayer First Act back in 2019, you know, it, 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 it asked the IRS to do something different in the way that it thinks about taxpayer experience. Um, but it's really an evolution of the thought processes that have happened in the IRS since um, at least the time that I've been involved um, since 2011, you know, in that deep interaction between state and, and federal tax administration. But certainly it, it relates all the way back to at least 1998 um, under the Restructuring Act, um, where the IRS, um, you know, got the structure that it that exists under now. Um, so it, while it's new and, you know, everybody is talking about experience in a different way, I really feel that it's more of an evolution. And really, that's a testament to the people who are in our agencies. Um, you know, there's a lot of passion within our agencies to um, ensure that we are providing the best services possible. That Taxpayer First Act legislation um, really gave us a new permission to think about experience differently. Um, so that was 2019. And then we had the pandemic, as you know, um, which, you know, changed everything and, and really accelerated um, the awareness of the challenges that we faced in experience. And I think helped Congress see, you know, our vision for the things we wanted to do better um, and also offer some funding um, that helps us get to that point. Um, I'll pause there for a moment, but there's more that I want to share with you about why we're doing what we're doing. I think that's fantastic because like you said, this is such an evolutionary topic. I think you know, the last 25 or 30 years in, in all sectors, it was always about customer service and customer service was a very narrow scope, right? It's customers that walk in or they call in, they have very specifically scoped issues. Everybody fit into buckets a little more cleanly. Um, income looked a little different back then. And then you, you enter into this modern era and on the commercial side, you know, all the partners we talked to there, they've seen an evolution in customer experience because it's everybody wants to be you know, Amazon or Target, and they want to have an app and they want to, they want to, you know, engage with customers real time. They want to be Zappos. They want to have really good returns in government that manifested a little bit differently. And it's because not just people have those experiences with their commercial vendors or stores they shop at, but they also now have very different structures to their lives. Uh, Short-term rentals happen. So there's income associated with that. You have people that are part of the gig economy. You have people that have far more complicated uh, you know, tax situations than they would have normally had. I think, you know, without overgeneralizing, complex tax situations were reserved for people of a certain income level or a certain, you know, uh, shareholders in large companies. And now you've got, you know, gig workers who may have 1099s from three or four different gig companies and have to navigate a far more complex thing than you know, our, our tax code really ever, ever contemplated back then. So this idea of experience, like meeting people where they are, meeting complex needs, being agile while doing it, it it's, it's so timely. And I couldn't agree with you more that what great timing to have the structure be put in place and then have the pandemic happen and then really just kind of pour extra fuel on the fire by then funding and, and allowing 
you know, exceptional individuals like yourself to come in and like actually make it happen. And I know that we appreciate from the state perspective, your background, because we feel that a lot of the things that states have done over the last decade, because they're these small laboratories are now things that, you know, your team is able to tackle in the IRS or able to bring some of those ideas and figure out how it scales to a federal workforce and the federal taxpayer. So I, I think it's all fantastic. I'll let you share more. I guess I'll roll it into kind of our next discussion question, which is because of that complexity of tax code and serving so many taxpayers, I think one of the goals of the experience office is to help people navigate that. And that's a, that's a big mountain to climb. So I guess share, share more of what you were going to say, but also like, how is, how are you beginning to climb that mountain to help taxpayers have that experience, knowing that there's so much about the tax code that that's really in the hands of Congress, not the IRS? Exactly. Um, and, and I think it's how do you make a complex system as simple as possible? Um, and, you know, and, and there's an art to, you know, simplifying things that are very complicated. And, and I do think that that states have had an opportunity to do that on a smaller scale. You know, and I, I think about coming from my state, you know, which had 3 million people and, and now we're dealing with, you know, 330 million people. So, you know, it, it it was a tiny microcosm, but but there's still a ton of lessons to learn there. And and I think really we have gotten so much benefit already at the IRS from you know expanding our communication and relationships with um, the state tax administrators and and sharing those stories. Um, and and I think the secret sauce ultimately for how the IRS is going to move forward is, you know, using the experience office to connect the dots on why the things that we're doing matter for real taxpayers or other stakeholders within the system. And, and sometimes, you know, the stakeholder isn't clearly the taxpayer. It might be, um, the, the state revenue agencies. But when we look through those revenue agencies, we see the end, you know, outcome beneficiary is the taxpayer and, and we share those taxpayers. Uh, similarly with the work that, that we do, you know, with various folks within the industry. So truly thinking about experience is thinking about how we connect those dots in the services that we provide um, at the IRS level. And, and, you know, the experience office isn't ultimately going to be the ones who do the programming or who design, you know, those services. We're going to leverage our teams that already exist throughout the IRS um, and then try to connect the dots, make people um, who have not interacted together aware that these things are happening in other places in ways that we haven't before. Um, and, and that's really, it's such fun and exciting work. It's got to be to be that, have the opportunity to be a superconductor between different parts of the IRS, which I think that's also something a lot of state tax administrators don't necessarily appreciate is the scale that the IRS operates at. And I think, you know, sometimes we talk in states about silos existing and the tech people don't talk to the business people. I mean, at the end of the day, the, even the biggest state agencies employ a few thousand people. The smallest ones employ a few hundred. The IRS employs tens of thousands of people across so many different business units and business lines. And so I get really, I mean, as a recovering project manager and as a technologist, like I get so excited, the idea of awareness being injected in from a group of people who actually are focused on 
that process and that flow and how people experience something, it's that's. I feel like it's it's got to be highly transformative. I, I don't know if, you know, as you've done your work, if there's any specific examples that come to mind, but, you know, are there some things that you've been able to work on recently or, you know, maybe general examples so we don't get into talking too much about the operations of the IRS, but, you know, that, that you feel that this, like the proof is already proving out as to the, the you know, the valid existence of, of this organization within the IRS. Yeah, and I think, where I see the most benefit happening is when I'm out communicating in the world about what we're doing. Um, so for example, I, I get invited to speak at various things like the FTA meeting that's coming up very shortly in Tucson. Um, and I also spend a lot of time talking to practitioners and, and practitioners to me are one of the best proxies for taxpayers um, because they can, you know, both speak the tax language and also share what those pain points are. So often I'll go out to speak and I'll, I'll talk about some of the great things that are happening within the IRS. And someone will say, but this thing is terrible. Like, for example, you know, the practitioner line, you know, still has weights, even though we've talked about our 85% level of service on the phones. Well, having folks raise those questions to me, I'm able to say, okay, here's the backstory. And the aha moment that happens, I think that level of transparency brings people together to say, okay, now I, I don't love this experience, but I understand why I'm having it. And I can be a little bit more patient as I wait for the better solutions to come. And I understand that with this funding, they are actually on the way. And, and in those forums, I'm also getting feedback and I'm having my team write down everything that everyone says so we can share that back with the operational teams to say, okay, here's the feedback we're hearing. How does that mesh with what we're doing? Um, so it's, it creates this virtuous feedback loop and you know the more you know different stakeholders we're hearing from the better our product is going to be in the end and you know it's it's with those voices that we're going to make a difference um and and it's not because the people in the irs don't care or you know don't um think about the experience it's just like anything else in our world where the diversity of thought is so important. You know, if, if we are not hearing from different perspectives, we don't know what we don't know. And, um, you know, th those interactions to me are so valuable. And I think we're seeing those feed into the system already and, and um, help accelerate the improvements that we're making. I think that makes so much sense that the notion of transparency and context building trust. I mean, that's, I think, Oftentimes, and I talked about this with a few other guests in the podcast, when we talk about the comparison between government and the private sector, I think one thing that most large commercial companies do really well is that kind of context transparency exercise where they say, hey, we, you know, we're UPS and we can't deliver all the presents by Christmas and here's why, but we're going to go build four more fleets of planes and we're going to make it happen. Government tends to be both in, in terms of process, we don't always know what we're going to do until we've decided what we're doing, which makes it very hard to be transparent because we don't want to give everybody every potential option that's on the table. But I think there's also this sense of government so highly trusted that sometimes when we're transparent, 
it may, you know, we, we're worried people will think we don't know what we're doing. And, and I think that every, every time I've turned a corner and seen someone building transparency, sharing context, it's done exactly the opposite, right? It's like, oh, there's, there's people here and they're thinking and they're solving problems. You know, we can, we can be patient if that's the case. So I, I hugely respect, and I appreciate you coming and speaking at our conferences. I know they're always, those are always fun sessions um, where our members get to hear a little bit about what you're working on with the context of their roles, but even the ability to get out and talk to these stakeholder groups, I, I can tell already how it's having such a profound effect on the way that, you know, you communicate out and the way that the, you know, the, the end work product is going to be. Um, talking about trust, I think that's also a really cool thing. So, you know, transparency and context in, in your outward communications. I know one of the initiatives that you all are working on is this kind of exploratory look into omni-channel, how taxpayers engage with the IRS, all the different initiatives that exist across all the different business lines. You know, one of the things that factors into trust, and I think it plays in particularly well with revenue agencies, is security. So it's this notion of, you know, you know, when you provide information to especially a revenue agency, you know, that information is going to be protected. I mean, we have federal regulations that govern it. We have state statutes that govern it. How does your team look at these kind of exploratory things that you're researching, which are certainly important modern initiatives, and also balancing that kind of legacy of trust and security of data that the IRS is known for? So we talk about our three-legged stool in, in um, state tax policy of property tax, sales tax, and income tax. I think there's also a three-legged stool um, in the world of experience, um, and it's simplicity seamlessness and security, um, all S words. And, and beautifully, those are in the executive order on customer experience. That is another guiding document that is helping us move forward. So I don't think that you can have um, trust in the work that we're doing unless we balance security along with making your um, interactions with us as simple as possible and your transition among different channels as seamless as possible. So, um, you know, and, and I don't think from my perspective, they're, they're equally weighted. Um, and as we think about rolling the tools out um, to taxpayers, you know, the, all of those public facing tools, um, like the improvements to online account, um, the tools that we're adding to um, the e-file process, the, the additional forms that you can um, e-file, um, creating forms that are um, fillable, non-tax forms that are fillable um, on your phone much more easily. Um, all of those tools require us to um, think deeply about security, and that's behind the scenes in all of our processes. Um, but something that that I think about a lot because I spend a lot of time on airplanes is, you know, what you know, my um, typical airline that I fly because of their the timing is is Delta, and one of the things they say um, as we're you know getting ready is that um, security is our shared responsibility, safety and security are our shared responsibility. And, and that really resonates with me um, because, as we know from the work that we've done collaboratively in the Security Summit, um, we're, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And 
that means that the more taxpayers that choose to interact with us digitally, we're going to need to make sure that everybody's on the same page of protecting their data. So it's not just, you know, the behind the scenes tools. It's, you know, if we have those hardened to the nth degree, um, you know, people are going to find a way to attack the weakest link. And nobody wants to be that weakest link. And we certainly don't want that link to be our taxpayers um, in that process. No, I think that makes a, a ton of sense. And I appreciate the reference both to the Security Summit, which has been a long, very long-term project between the states, IRS, and the tax software industry, but also your point about the weakest link, because I think that's, as a technologist, my biggest pet peeve is like, oh, we'll just make it really secure. And, you know, ultimately the, the difference between secure and really secure is, is how people engage with it and how people interact with it. And it's the reason why, you know, in, in you know, this time of year, as everyone does their online shopping and, and logs into their bank accounts and whatever else, it's the reason why those text messages that you get, get longer and longer and longer every year. I, I chuckled the other day, I got one and the message itself was so long that the additional code that I needed, I had to scroll through the text message to get to it because they wanted to disclaim to me that, you know, we're never going to ask you for this. Don't provide it to somebody over the phone. And, and it's because yes. that education, you know, we can do so much work to educate our employees and educate our partners. But at the end of the day, the actual end user needs that education. So it's really, I think I appreciate, uh, you know, as a taxpayer that you all are being so thoughtful in how do we build a resilient modern experience that educates the user so that, you know, ultimately in any really secure system, the user in, you know, whether it be the internal users, external users are the weakest links of that security chain. Uh, Cause humans can always be influenced. Computers are, computers are a little bit trickier to influence unless you're talking about, you know, chat GPT and we won't even go down that road. Uh, <laughs> oh, <this> good. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I can make it through one podcast without talking about generative AI. It's, it's, it's possible. So looking at, Digital service. I know we're talking about security, but I, I think this notion of omnichannel, of expansion of service is actually quite impressive because in the last, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, um, in the last 12 months or so, I, I think the IRS has effectively increased the amount of digital tools available to external stakeholders, you know, by almost a third. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more, um, you know, of a lot more ability to engage the IRS digitally. And I know that's partly bookended by a desire to help control call volumes and control the touch points that individual service agents would need. But talk, how is that going? I mean, I, are you all seeing the operational benefit of that? And I hope so, because it seems that those, those tools are in, increasing in the, the frequency in which we get to, we get to experience them. Well, and I think they are helping significantly. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're fine tuning the work that we do on the phones. But at the end of the day, you know, the phones are there uh, to solve problems when something goes wrong. And um, finding ways to address whatever the challenge is and communicate clearly to taxpayers before they even need to get to the phone or reserving the phone for those who actually don't have another way to get to us. Um, you know, that's the, the ultimate goal. You know, that's the digital first concept, um, that, you know, we're, we're talking about in, you know, the IRS and across the federal government is, you know, making that tool 
digitally available um, to everyone who wants to use it, but having the backstop for those who can't um, or, you know, because of, you know, uh, challenges with broadband or whatever their issue is, um, uh, or they just need to talk to a human, you know, because their issue is very stressful for them. Um, so I, I think we are starting to see um, more and more people engage with us um, digitally. And I think the way that we're planning for rolling out these tools, um, we're expanding not only the online account for taxpayers, we're expanding it for practitioners. And I think that's been a really big gap um, in that the, the limitations in what you could do in the online account for practitioners were um, not as uh, robust Rightfully so, because we needed to develop the taxpayer first. Um, <laughs> taxpayer first act, you hear that? Um, um, so those were slower to come. And, you know, and some of the financial challenges made it slower than we would have liked. But now that those are ramping up, I think we're going to see some pretty rapid acceleration of usage of those accounts. We're hoping, you know, we're improving your ability to um, access those accounts and trying to, you know, with with the, the latest generation of um, authentication, it's becoming better and better every day. Um, still, you know, not perfect, but whatever is perfect. Um, those tools are already making a difference. I don't have any statistics in front of me, um, but you can feel it in, you know, the the call volumes on the main line. You're starting to see it in the practitioner lines. Um, the tools that are available in collections are really making a difference to, that allow people to um, interact with chatbots or otherwise make um, installment agreements. Those are lots of folks who normally would be diverted to the phones who are able to take action now um, digitally if they so choose. Um, so I, I should have more statistics for you, but I don't, But because it is still very early in a lot of these processes, but the glimmer is there and it's very exciting. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, especially I, I almost never ask people about statistics because I feel like in government, we have to vet them through so many sources anyway, before we can ever share them. But the, the, the feeling is, is really what matters. I mean, the, the notion that we're moving in the right direction and the notion that people are receiving these tools. And I also appreciate what you said, which is this respect for people who may not have access or who may not have the comfort level with using those online tools, but also recognizing that there's a tremendous amount of people who are ready to. And I think for a long time, you know, especially in government, we looked at things a little bit differently, like until everybody was ready to go digital, we, we hesitated to, to push digital initiatives. And now it's almost like we've started you know, properly segmenting the population and saying, you know what, we've got some digital natives, they're going to talk to a chat bot, they're going to go log in, they're going to do their thing. We've got some folks who are perhaps like you and me, highly extroverted and would just rather pick up the phone and call somebody. You know, we've got people who have a language issue and they want to speak, you know, with someone who can help speak their language and translate their issue to them. I mean, just meeting people where they are is so incredibly important. And Every example that you've given today has been like an example of here's how we're meeting people where they are. And that's 
that's powerful. That's 330 million people. That's a lot of places to meet people uh, in order to have positive experience. So it's well, it's you, you said something there about the digital. It, it's it's the tipping point, you know, the 80-20 rule. And, you know, when we got to a point of 80% e-filing, you know, what what an enormous accomplishment for the country, you know, because the states are right along there with us um, with the, the modernized e-file tool. Um, such an exciting place to be in the 90s or approaching the 90s in lots of places across the country. Um, so we're at that tipping point, which means, you know, we have to sustain that level of service, but we're now to the hard part. You know, you're, you're supposed to, to tackle the 80% first and then do the 20. Well, we're to the 20. And, and that's, that's hard. It's, it's very hard um, to make sure that we are correctly identifying what the pain points are and creating the right solutions. Um, and I, I think part of what we see in, um, you know, the experience office is that, you know, many places along the journey, if it is after filing, there is a need for a human interaction. Um, unless, you know, unless they are um, true digital natives, um, you know, folks of our generation and, and beyond, you want to talk to a human because this is scary. Um, you know, I think for my children who are, I don't know what they are, Gen Z, I think, um, they do not want to talk to a human at all. Um, but we're, we're in that balance of tipping point where, you know, the folks in the Gen X are like, yeah, I can do this technology, but if it really gets there, I'm finding I'm to the point where I'm like my mother, when I used to make fun of her for not being able to use the VCR, I'm now to that point for some things. And I'm like, kids figure this out for me. I'm, I'm too old for this, but, but I like to think that I'm really high tech in most things. So, um, you know, it's, it's finding the right spot at the right time for the right person, um, you know, to get them what they need, ideally on the first try. Um, and it is a, it, it's high, as, high aspiration, um, but I think marrying the technology and the humans, we can get there. Um, and it's just, it's a very exciting time to be at the IRS while all of this is happening. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I know, you know, with, with our work with states and all of the different modernization projects that they go through and how we, you know, kind of have insight and help, um, help connect the dots for, for those projects, something at the scale of the IRS is almost unfathomable to, to think about. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like just sliding a scale and scaling something up. You have an order of complexity that comes with the federal tax code comes with the different population bases. It comes with access all over the country. I mean, it, Anytime you get more local geographically in the U.S., you know, things get an order of magnitude more, more simple. I mean, you, especially whether it's regionality, whether it's, you know, even, even something as simple as people being able to understand each other from an accent standpoint, um, you know, as a Midwesterner who transplanted into the South, that was an adjustment for me. I understood what everybody was saying, but it wasn't my, you know, it, I still had to say, wait, wait what, did, what, what is it you said again I, to understand you know, and the phrases are all different and we're a very, we have a very idiomatic language since we all speak English and that also gets very, very interesting at times. And I guess speaking of, of that, so we've talked about technology and we talked about that kind of outreach. Let's like the other practical side that I know you all have been doing a lot of work in is kind of continuing to push forward this, the, the plain, the mission of plain language, the plain language movement. And for anybody who's listening, I'll, I'll just quickly summarize, you know, the plain language movement 
is the idea that government work with, um, have attorneys partner with non-attorneys. I always joke that it's attorneys and English majors, but it's people who specialize in technical language, accurate technical language, and people who specialize in readable, understandable language, and then finding the happy medium between the two. And I always find my favorite example is in, in government and revenue agencies, if you are due a refund check, that is referred to as a refund warrant. And most people don't want to open up a letter and see that they're having, that a warrant is coming their way from the revenue agency. They don't think that's a positive thing. And I, I can't imagine why. So a lot of state agencies over the years have revised their language to say, you know, your refund check or your refund payment in order to make that more understandable. I know that that initiative has been long underway at the IRS, but there's a few things that you all have kind of, uh, kind of goosed forward a little bit um, in, in the taxpayer experience office. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, that type of education, since we spent a bunch of time on technology. We love plain language in the taxpayer experience office. Um, and you know, are looking for opportunities to improve, um, you know, how we talk to each other every day. And, and you forget, you know, you start to talk in acronyms when you spend enough time in a tax agency, because, you know, they're just a lot of words. And, you know, maybe that happens in every industry, but it feels like tax is um, full of acronyms, um, more so than, than many other spaces. Um, so, I mean, I think just, just being as simple as remembering not to use the acronyms when you're, you're talking to regular people who aren't tax nerds, um, you know, I, I think is one of those things that we're paying attention to. Um, we're, in the in the process under our strategic operating plan of rethinking our notices and you know i know states have done a lot of work in this space already um you know not just thinking about plain language but thinking about color schemes you know to your point of you know nobody's looking forward to getting a warrant um in the mail um they'd like to get a check but you know the first thing you think of as from a warrant is that somebody's out to arrest you um so just those really simple things and it, it's just something that takes vigilance you know we've had um a statute on the books at the federal level since i think 2010 um that said you know here's how you do plain language. Um, but it's very easy to go down that slippery slope of, well, we're going to add one more sentence because the law changed a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, a document becomes, you know, a five page document. And how is a taxpayer going to wade through that? So, you know, I think reaching out to, um, you know, our constituencies in this feedback loop to say, does this document make sense to you? Um, is part of that conversation. And, you know, and we've done work with the states over, you know, since in the time that I've been here on various topics, um, where we're trying to make our communication clearer. Um, and and it, it, it's hard to highlight just one place because it, it is, um, an, an overarching um, theme that we have running through everything that we do is how are we going to use words that can resonate with the audience that we are um, intending to speak to. Um, and that, you know, goes maybe a little bit of a segue to um, our non-English speaking 
um, taxpayers. Um, every state has folks who English is not their first language, and they would prefer to get communication in another language. We've gone pretty far down this, the, the path on Spanish, but we're working on other languages as well to make sure that, you know, I, I can't imagine being someone who English is not my first language and trying to understand tax. Um, you know, people who are, you know, native English speakers struggle to understand tax. So um, the level of complexity that that adds for folks, it's pretty exciting to be moving down a path of, you know, tools such as large language models and, um, and machine translation tools that can I'm, take I'm a being, first cut. I'm being AI baited. I'm, I, I, I <laughs> didn't talk about it. Now I'm I feel like baiting I have to, you. I I am. You're right. It's it, this is such what you're describing is such a classic example of, of the, the possibilities of new technologies. And I'll share something that's not AI related, but I was just at an international conference a couple weeks back. And of course there was simultaneous translation because there were speakers speaking their native language all over. And I missed like the first 20 minutes of the first presentation of the day because I sat there completely enamored by the fact that my translator, the person who was like right speaking into the booth and talking to your earpiece, so correctly grasped the technical concepts that the speaker was talking about that I was completely distracted wondering, oh my gosh, what special translator school did they go to? Because that's hard stuff. I mean, it's hard for a native speaker to understand uh, you know, complex tax and compliance issues. And in this case, it was like criminal fraud and things like that. For them to then translate it into the proper English construct for then me to understand it, I was completely blown away. And I think that's exactly aligns with what you were describing. It's it's how do we make it accurate? It's not good. It's not like we're just saying, you know, here's... Here's where the house is. Here's where the front door is. Here's how you get outside. It's here's how you meet your complex ta tax obligation. And oh yeah, here's how we define this term and making sure those definitions are correct and making sure they're understandable. And it's just, it's incredible, uh, incredible, incredible work. Every time I've talked to any of your folks that work on translation or any of these initiatives, I always walk away amazed because they have to think in several different languages and I can, you know, I, I can really keep it together in one. So it's, it's very impressive for them. Absolutely. Um, I, I think our teams that do this work are so talented. And, and you're right. It, particularly, you think about the idioms that we have in English. Well, there's similar idioms in all of these other languages. Um, I had someone tell me um, they were translating something from English into Spanish, and the literal translation was an insult. And, and so, so thankfully, you know, the the people who were vetting this document were like, um, you can't say that because <laughs> that is, you know, just totally off the board. You're not allowed to say it, even though it's literal translation. So so it goes to the point that, you know, as as wonderful as the technology is right now, we still need the humans um, because the technology didn't realize that what it was saying was not appropriate um in the context so you know marrying those two um channels i think you know helps us provide the experience that that we want to provide um and and i'm, I'm sorry i teased you with that little bit of ai there well, you did a good job the, of resisting well and i'll tell you i'll still i'll, I'll give him one little bit because I, I feel like I, I if i can't work this message in every time we talk about ai i'm not doing my job which is exactly what you just described 
these tools are tools. The reason we call them tools is because someone must use them for them to be effective, right? A hammer, you don't just sit a hammer down the counter and all of a sudden hammers the nail in. It doesn't work that way. You, you know, a human has to operate the hammer and it makes the nail go in a whole lot more effectively than if you were just pounding on it with your fist. And that's, that is what the potential of some of these new AI tools are. And that's precisely where they stop. AI and generative AI, it's going to help us accelerate innovation in so many areas. Language is one of those really great areas because we have such great language libraries already. So the data exists that, that these models can use to, to really make them sing literally and figuratively. And when you get to the implementation of those tools, the one thing that government has a really, and I th not necessarily government, legislatures in general have a really bad habit of new technology innovation equals lower need for staff. And that formula has never been a proven formula. <laughs> and I really like to make the point every time we talk about AI that that formula should also be not a valid formula in this case, because if anything, it's going to help organizations like the IRS, like state revenue agencies, actually meet their workload needs with the teams they have by adding these assistive tools that are going to hopefully accelerate workflows. But you still need things like double checks because an AI in most cases would not have caught that insult being translated from English to Spanish. It may have done a great job translating the words, but the actual context requires a human to, to really understand it accurately when you're talking about something so highly technical. And I want to vibe off that a little bit, if you don't mind, um, to talk about you know, how employee experience is integral to taxpayer and customer experience. Um, one of the things that we're working on in the IRS is a 360 view of a taxpayer's account. So what does that mean for us? Um, we have all of these disparate systems, many of which are old and, you know, states in many cases have been through this already and aren't having the similar problems anymore, but feeding all of these systems into a single screen where the customer service representative or the auditor or whoever is working your case can see what they need to know about you without flip, flip, flipping among all of these different screens, um, you know, hugely beneficial to our employees, but at the end of the day, that's a huge benefit to our taxpayers. Why is that? When someone calls the IRS, one of the most common things that you'll hear at the beginning of the call after they've authenticated it, you is they'll say, let me put a, you on a five to seven minute hold while I check on that. And so that's what they're doing is they're rapidly checking between all of these different screens to see gather all the information they need to answer the question. Sometimes they have to put you on a second five to seven minute hold because they can't get all the information quickly enough. So that will be a game changer, not only for our employees, but for our taxpayers when that sort of system can put into place. And it means we need to, to upgrade a lot of those foundational tools that aren't the, the sexy, beautiful bells and whistles that are taxpayer facing. They're very boring. Um, but they're foundational, literally, to building a system that delivers the service that our taxpayers um, in this country deserve, um, that can, you know, give them the information they need when they need it in a format that's understandable. That's an incredible initiative. I am very excited for future conference presentations about how this actually gets effectualized. Because like you said, a lot of these foundational systems 
and I won't pick on the IRS, I'll, I'll even pick on just some general state agencies. A lot of states, when they modernize, they're going from a COBOL system, which half the listeners won't have any idea with that, a very, very old programming language that very few people specialize in that requires large mainframe um, compute platforms. And they're just leapfrogging. I mean, state agencies are leapfrogging from these legacy systems to elastic, highly scalable, highly customizable cloud programs. And that that's transformational when you're talking about an agency at the scale of a state. What you're describing, these like technology upgrades, and regardless of the nature, whether they're smaller or larger, that, that's going to be transformational. And like you said, it's the almost sometimes the unsexy things that that are the most exciting because there are so many diverse systems within the IRS that were all purpose built for different divisions of the organization. And, and like you said, back in 1998, then the reorg, and there were some modernization that kind of happened at that time. And now of course, all of the modernization efforts that your commissioner now has underway and, and his focus, it's very, it's a very exciting time. I think both as a tax nerd and a technologist and frankly, as a taxpayer to see all this kind of come to life. So I'm, I'm excited to, to hear more as time goes on. It certainly means that you'll have to come back to the podcast. And, and That's right. I look forward to that opportunity. So I guess we're closing in on the end of our time together. Uh, I always like to ask our guests, um, one, if you have anything that you want to promote right now that you'd like people to be aware of, and two, um, if you want to share one or two things that you're particularly excited about um, you know, in your area or that the IRS has going on, and then we'll wrap up. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you first to you for hosting me. And number two, to all of the states, um, who have offered feedback, um, and just been great partners, um, to the IRS through the years and in particularly recently, um, you know, it, it literally takes all of us to deliver a tax season, and and we could not do that without the partnership that we have with FTA and the state revenue agencies. So um, I would be remiss if I did not, you know, um, express my thankfulness for that, particularly here as we are shortly after um, the Thanksgiving um, holiday and still in a spirit of thankfulness for the season. Um, and then I'd like to just share a few things, you know, conceptually that our commissioner has been talking about, um, because I think it's really helpful for the states to be aware of, you know, the conceptual framework that we're working within. Um, you know, we have the big strategic operating plan, but really the commissioner is kind of bucketing things into three lanes. Um, the first one is, you know, that service lane. Taxpayers should be able to get the information they need in the way they want to get it um, in a timely fashion. So if you need to get us on the phone, you should be able to get us on the phone, but we should have plenty of digital channels where you can get what you need um, and get it in a reasonable amount of time so you can be done um, have your issue resolved and go on with your life. Um, the second one is um, enforcement. You know, making sure that we're using the digital and analytics tools that we have to um, um, conduct our audits in a way that actually gets to noncompliance and doesn't bother people who are doing the right thing or for whom a better tool exists. Um, 
be it education, improving our systems or what have you. So applying the right tool at the right time for enforcement um, is critically important. And, and I do know that there's a lot of work that's been done in the states in that space. Um, and, and hopefully there are opportunities to collaborate there going forward. And the last place where I think there is truly, you know, a, an opportunity for expanded collaboration is um, protecting our taxpayers um, and other stakeholders from scams. Um, you know, the, there are abundant opportunities for uh, folks in a digital world to take advantage of um, taxpayers who, um, you know, think something looks real. And the more we move to digital services, the more opportunities uh, folks who, who have a nefarious objective are going to have to, to try and take advantage of people. And, you know, partnering in the Security Summit, um, the ISAC and other spaces with states and industry is, is critically important for sharing that messaging. And, you know, I, I think that relationship is very much appreciated and, and a space where we can all work together to um, ensure that we're providing the best service possible to our taxpayers. So I do thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Um, I, I was delighted to be invited. I was so excited. We were talking about taxpayer experience and I was like, I know the perfect person. We got to get Courtney on. And this was absolutely the conversation that I hoped and dreamed it would be. And in the spirit of, I don't know, uh, FTA, for those listening, FTA launched our first ever public campaign a, a few weeks ago. It's our kindness campaign. Kindness is at the center of everything FTA holds uh, important as an organization, but it's also at the center, we believe, of every tax administrator in the United States and how they feel about taxpayers and wanting to help people meet their obligations and, and just be good citizens. So uh, thank you for your kindness, both to the states and to the taxpayers, all 330 million of them in the US and all the wonderful work that your office is doing. And I cannot wait to catch up again and see you in a little bit at our conference in Tucson and hear even more about the Office of the Taxpayer Experience. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you.